the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Uh, I bet you say that to all the talk show hosts. <laughs> Good afternoon. Welcome. Good to have you with us. It is your basic Thursday, just about uh, five minutes after the hour of five o'clock, and we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. We are, of course, here each Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m., addressing issues that impact your life and your world. We'll do more of that on tonight's program. The... Uh, the brand new Congress is busy at work. Oh boy! And uh, you know, we 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 knew we knew last November that there were going to be some changes and some new faces and some new ideas. And boy, they're certainly not disappointing us. Coming up a little bit later on in the program, we're going to talk about the so-called uh, a Green Deal and uh, the new Green Deal that uh, promises. Uh, what was the old the line? I think why. Was either Coolidge or Hoover that was going to be a car in every driveway and a chicken in every pot, and we don't care who pays for it. <laughs> well, we got to think about who's going to pay for it. We're going to spend some time wandering through that very question. And later on, we've got Ben Lieberman, senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, who spent seven years as a senior counsel on the House Committee on Energy and Commerce talking about this very issue. We'll also be joined by Dr. Marilyn Singleton who will give us some insights into the Medicare for All Act of 2019. This is promising more than just a car in every driveway and a chicken in every pot, but apparently a doctor on every block, and don't worry about who's going to pay for it. So lots going on back in Washington, D.C. We're going to talk about it on tonight's program. Also, Justin Dean will be along later on tonight in hour number two. Justin is um, the former communications director with Mars Hill Church in Seattle. He's going to be one of the um, workshop presenters at the upcoming um, Bass Convention that will be taking place at Redwood Chapel in Castro Valley uh, one week from tonight, in fact. Uh, March 7th, 8th, and 9th will be live on location from uh, 5 until 7 p.m. on both Thursday and Friday. So Justin Dean will drop by, tell us a bit about what you can anticipate happening at this upcoming Bass Convention. All right, let's get down to cases here, shall we? I mentioned about some of these bills making their way through the uh, Congress, and uh, one of the bills that's under consideration that's been put forward by uh, California Congressman Mike Thompson is H.R. 8. Um, this is one of several bills that attempts to address ongoing issues that relate to gun violence in America and to give us some insight as to what this bill hopes to do and whether or not it falls short, we're joined by Laura Carno. Laura is a visiting fellow with the Independent Women's Forum and founder of Faster Colorado. Laura, thank you for taking time to be with us. Uh, give us a little bit of a background in terms of uh, the breadth and depth of H.R. 8. We know that one thing that's often talked about is, gee, some of these characters managed to get their hands on guns if we just did a better job at background checks. And apparently this attempts to do just that. But does it really? 
Yeah, and, and thanks for having me, Craig. This is such an important topic for folks to uh, know what's going on um, thousands of miles away. Um, HR 8 sounds great on the surface um, because it requires a background check for every firearm sold. Um, what's What's different is um, most people that aren't um, gun owners don't know that there already is a uh, background check, and it's referred to as the NICS check. It's that instant check system um, that's already federally required. Um, What this does is adds personal transfers. And um, as you mentioned, I'm in Colorado. We actually passed a very similar law in 2013 um, to add personal transfers. Uh, to um, to the background check, and not only has it not um, improved anything in Colorado, our violent crime has actually gone up since 2013. And um, you know, when when most people hear the word background check, they they have a good feeling about that because, of course, we don't want felons or crazy people to have um, access to firearms. But um, uh, Mike Thompson, you mentioned. Um, I I wrote a blog about this, and I said in the blog that he needs to look no further than a study that was done in the Annals of Epidemiology about California's comprehensive background check law. And um, they did a study in the 10 years following the passage, and Californians were absolutely no safer. So it really um, is just a false sense of security. And what's problematic about this, and you refer to the national system that's currently in place, if that system isn't kept up-to-date, and it's not checked um, with a great degree of diligence every single time, then it's largely pretty useless, isn't it? I mean, we can have all the laws in the world, but, you know, the old adage, if you don't enforce them, what good are they? Sure, exactly. And um, the, you're exactly right about the, the uh, NICS system, and it's, a, um, it's run by the federal government. Um, the guy that killed people at Fort Hood, Texas, the guy that killed people in at that church um, in Charleston when they were doing their Bible study um, just a, a week or so ago in Aurora, Illinois. All of those killers would have been denied the ability to purchase a, a firearm um, you know, through a retailer. If, the, if different government agencies had put that information in, they would have failed the NICS check. And um, you know, you, you look at this and you go, okay, well, this all makes uh, tremendous sense, but um, there's another study that um, only 1.3% of prisoners um, who used guns, and that's why they're in prison, used them badly, I should say. Only 1.3% of them even got their guns at retailers. So you're, you're talking about, you know, this is a law that sounds great. Um, in, in practice, it doesn't make things better, like in California and in um, Colorado. Um, and at worst, it just gives people a false sense of security because these criminals, they just go buy them on the black market or they steal them. Um, it, th- these bills do nothing uh, except maybe um, some of these, uh, these anti-gun legislators in Congress, maybe it causes them to get big uh, donation checks from people like Michael Bloomberg, but that's really all they accomplish. Well, at the end of the day, again, if you're not keeping the system current, it becomes largely useless. And if we're not taking it, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that the issue of gun violence needs to be addressed. But what we don't need is to put a Band-Aid on a broken leg and say, there it is, okay, you're good to go, and somehow serve as a panacea for all of our problems. And meanwhile, the real issues uh, continue unaddressed and unabated. I mean, let's face it, most people that have significant ill intent 
at heart, if they don't obtain the guns, quote unquote, legally, they're going to be able to obtain the guns illegally. And I bet if we had some way of keeping track of this, and we don't certainly because it's all black market or illegal activity, but if we could, I bet you'd find that the number of weapons that are exchanged uh, within the territorial U.S., just the 48 continental, is just as high in illegal exchanges of guns amongst criminals as we see legal exchanges. So, again, seems to be kind of a Band-Aid on a broken leg. Yeah, There's- absolutely. And it, it doesn't address mental illness. It doesn't uh, address anything that uh, really contributes. And um, you know, so, so when in Congress they're saying these things are going to help, um, they, they are um, long on dramatics and short on facts, and they don't want anybody listening in on those congressional hearings or the, the debate on the floor this week to um, to think that these things are actually going to make any difference because they're not. There's another bill at play coming out of the House, which is H.R. 1112 by Jim Claiborne of South Carolina. This addresses the, the so-called mandatory waiting time. Tell me about that. Right. So currently, under the NICS uh, system that we mentioned, um, and, and normally <coughs> if, if I were to go in and, um, to my local gun store and buy a firearm, I go through the NICS check, um, it comes back very quickly, within you know fifteen minutes to an hour. Um, but there's a there's a kind of a maximum on that. It says um, if if they don't if Nix doesn't come back with a denial in three days, then the the retailer may sell the purchaser the gun. So it's sort of a uh, you know we look at it as a um, a safety net from somebody being improperly um, uh, you know prohibited from buying a gun that's really lawfully able to. Um, what they want to do is extend that three-day window to 10 days, and by the way, 10 business days. So if you're on a holiday weekend or something like that, it could, it could be significantly longer. Um, and, uh, and then it can be extended. So with, with really no, no due process for the person who's being denied the firearm. So somebody who's in, let's say, a domestic violence situation where they need something today because they are scared to death of their armed ex, um, this really puts their lives in danger. And we've seen that over and over again across the country. And and the big pause in there, once again, uh, is only effective if the system is being kept up, if the due diligence is taking place. My goodness, we have a 30-day, 35-day government shutdown. How much information got entered into the NICS system during that time? Probably none of it. And so even if you go from three days to 10 days, um, absent accurate current information, it, it really is of no effect. Laura Carno. Visiting fellow with the Independent Women's Forum, founder of Faster Colorado. We appreciate uh, the updates on those two bills, H.R. 8 and H.R. 1112. More information on the web about the Independent Women's Forum at IWF.org. All right, 516, we're going to step aside and get an update for you on traffic this Thursday. Leading off, here's Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Hey, Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. 20 minutes after the hour of 5 o'clock here on the Thursday edition of Lifeline. I'm, I'm trying to recall whether the the remark, the observation was made. I, I want to say maybe Thomas Jefferson. It could have been Benjamin Franklin. I could be wrong on both counts. 
But one of the founding fathers made the observation in kind of looking at the, the big picture of Congress and the uh, the public purse strings, and that was the notion that once the voting public, public made the connection that through the functionality of the Congress that we could essentially vote ourselves money, that it would be pretty much the beginning of the end of the republic. And you have to wonder, with some of the new excitement, brand new on Capitol Hill, about all the neat things that they get to do as members of Congress, uh, if we not, might not be heading that way at the end of the republic. And, and I say that with some degree of exaggeration, but not much, when you consider the fact that it's easy to be a newly elected member of Congress and get to Washington, D.C., and make all kinds of promises. We're going to fix things, change things, build things, tear things down. And one of the things that we know has been a long part of the the public debate, the public discourse here over the last many years has been the issue of health care. I don't think that you can find two people other than maybe those in the insurance companies that say that uh, health care is getting along just fine. Um, most of us agree that the system is broken and needs help. There's no way to control costs. We have this very awkward way in which, uh, you know, uh, bean counters get involved in decisions that shouldn't uniquely be left and singularly left up to the patient and his or her doctor. It's a mess, right? We tried fixing it, quote unquote, with the Affordable Care Act. We know that that blew up even before the final vote was in. So now what? Well, now they're fashioning a new proposal on Capitol Hill, the Medicare for All Act of 2019, and here to give us some insights as to what this bill says it will do and what will actually happen is board-certified anesthesiologist Dr. Marilyn Singleton. Dr. Singleton is a board of directors member and president-elect of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons and proudly graduated here in the Bay Area from Stanford University and earned her MD at UCSF Medical School. And Dr. Singleton, great to have you on the program. Well, thank you so much for having me. So we want to fix a lot of things when it comes to health care, and the panacea, at least in the minds of some, seems to be, let's just do away with insurance companies. Uh, Let's let's just simply say... that the government is going to go full-on, full-time in the health care business. We know that that's been problematic historically for seniors with problems, management costs, overruns, etc., and, and, and underpaying within Medicare. I can't imagine what would happen if you had all 325 or 350 million Americans all dependent upon Medicare for our health care. Well, the problem is, number one, one of the fallacies that a lot of folks who aren't already on Medicare don't know, Medicare is not free. So the government is collecting from folks from cradle to grave, practically, for Medicare, 2.5% from every paycheck goes to Medicare. And once you get Medicare, you have to pay for it. It has premiums. And this whole Medicare for all, suddenly there's no premiums, no co-pays, and it alleges that it will pay for absolutely every quote-unquote medically necessary thing you could possibly want, including long-term care. This is impossible. It's, It's a complete impossible dream. Plus, the law, I was so hoping that with the new law, at least they put a budget in there and we'd have something to really run some numbers against. They don't even put a budget in the new law. They do not even address the cost. 
So where the ACA, uh, at the time we were told by Nancy Pelosi, well, just pass it and we'll figure out what's in it. This is what? Just pass it and we'll figure out how to pay for it? I mean, I yeah, free stuff sounds like fun if you're on the receiving side. But we know at the end of the day, there's no free lunch. Somebody had to had to raise the cow to, uh, you know, to slice the beef. Um, e- even with Bernie Sanders promoting free education, that sounds great. Then ta- talk to teachers and ask how many of them are willing to go to work every day, five days a week, and instruct students at no cost. And you come to find out that there's no such thing as a free lunch, no no such thing as a free education, and there's certainly no such thing as free Medicare for all. And you mentioned, Doctor, putting long-term care into this program. My goodness, we've got 80 million baby boomers, and 10,000 every day are reaching retirement age. What happens when a good percentage of that, say half of them, end up requiring long-term care that averages six, $8,000 a month? And we just think the money's going to come out of the sky? Well... I hate to say this. No, it will bankrupt the system, which already is scheduled to be bankrupt by 2026. What we see already happening is steering older patients toward hospice. And folks who used to be in the hospital and get their full week of IV antibiotics get a couple of days of antibiotics and then it's sort of, well, you're old, you're sick, get over it, and now we'll put you in hospice. And in my view, that the medically necessary treatment for being beyond of use to society will be, let's just put you in a hospice program and keep you comfortable, just like those babies that they want to kill after birth and just keep them comfortable. And this isn't something... It's just been made up. Rahm or um, Ezekiel Emanuel, who was one of the architects of Obamacare, has his system called the Complete Life System, where they actually judge people based on their usefulness to society, deciding that children under five, people over 75 are somewhat expendable, and that adolescence is where the money should be spent on. So people think about these things. It, it's not a bizarre uh, science fiction novel to think that the older folks that need long-term care, it makes you wonder, what will this long-term care be? Well, and I tell you what, to just sort of um, demonstrate the veracity of what you're saying, I have a little experience with this in that my paternal grandmother at the age of 85 uh, had a little heart issue, and uh, it was determined that she needed to have a pacemaker installed. And uh, we were told um, by the doctor that worked for the hospital, and I don't want to malign anybody here, but they, they used to be a big cement company. You can figure out the rest that it would not be worthwhile at her age to put in a pacemaker at the age of 85, to which I said, well, sans the pacemaker, what are we talking about here? So, you know, it it could be a month or two or three. Anytime a major heart incident comes along, she would just, that would be it. It would not be, the heart would not be able to recover and she'd be gone. Um, Upon hearing that, I immediately said, you're off the case. We're getting her moved to a different hospital, brought her own physician in, the family, together with the doctor, decided what the best approach was. The pacemaker was installed. My grandmother lived another eight years. She made it to the age of 93. 
And uh, the day before she died, she was still reading the newspaper cover to cover every day, answering all the questions on uh, Wheel of Fortune, and uh, lived a very full, very vibrant life. So imagine if this been a scenario when some nameless, faceless board says, you know what, we have determined that there's no value to your grandmother's life, and we would have lost those eight precious additional years that we had with her. It's just, I think, demonstrative of the notion that that they, they, they somehow, with a wink, wink, nod, nod, try to acknowledge that there are costs involved in all of this and serious costs. They just don't want to approach it like adults. That's right. And we have, this is where we have to speak up. And one of the things I'll tell patients is if somebody tries to give you the brush off, just like the story you just told, tell them, you treat me like I'm 95-year-old Jimmy Carter who's getting treated to the max. You treat me like I'm 85-year-old Ruth Bader Ginsburg that's getting treated to the max. We are all just as important as these folks, and we need to demand that sort of treatment. They need to hear from people that we will not accept being treated like second-class citizens just so somebody can give a political slogan in time for the election. And I'm curious, Dr. Singleton, from what you know of the Medicare for All Act of 2019, uh, any attempt in there to try as they want to create this huge bureaucracy to to address costs? Um, Has there been any discussion whatsoever in terms of the problem that exists right now, where if you eliminate private insurance, who, by the way, not only picks up the tab for all of us that are insured by private insurance, but also also helps cover the gap between the Medicare underpayments. I understand right now there's about a 12 cent per dollar gap in Medicare and about uh, 10 cents in Medicaid. That means that they're paying less than what it's costing the provider. So at the end of the day, private insurance ends up kind of picking up the difference. Has any of that discussion been taken into consideration here? Absolutely not. And it's a huge, huge difference. We're talking $40 billion a year difference in the cost to all the hospitals. And the amounts paid to physicians is actually quite a bit less. And for years, private insurance has been making up the gap. So they're going to eliminate private insurance. And then what happens? This is the thing that's just so shocking about reading the new bill. Cost isn't addressed. They talk about negotiating some drug prices, but beyond that, it's, it's just not even mentioned. And, and Bernie Sanders' bill, which is pretty much the same as the new House bill, his idea, of course, is all the money that was spent on Medicare, Medicaid, and the Children's Health Program, that would go to the Medicare for All. It's like, okay, fine, that's about a trillion dollars. But guess what? We spend $3.5 trillion on health care overall. So costs need to be addressed, and it's not even in there. It's like, where are they going to come up with the extra two and a half trillion dollars? Well, and, and I think you've alluded to this. Failure to address this on the front end going in means on the back end they're going to say, well, guess what, guys? You know, we've got a, a trillion or two in funds available, and we have uh, double that amount in expenses, so we have to cut costs, and now we're going to begin – um, rationing health care, and we're going to decide who gets it, 
who doesn't, who's worthy, who isn't. Wow. And all of a sudden now, American exceptionalism and the the recognition of the value of life completely goes out the window, and suddenly we've just decided that, you know, some nameless, faceless board in Washington, D.C. gets to decide whether grandma lives or dies. Well, you said it. Absolutely right. Because there's only two answers when you have no money. You have to cut services or you have to try to tax. And they will have taxed people dry at that point, and so the services will be cut. And this has been shown in England and in Canada. No matter what they say, when you talk to people who are actually in the system, they wait so long to get various treatments, even cancer treatments. And, you know, to kind of um, put a bow on this, I have a colleague here uh, who was fond of saying, hey, don't fool me. I am not falling for the old banana in the tailpipe trick. And I think we as consumers, listen again, as I said before, I think all of us can pick fault with the current system and find that there are things that need to be corrected and adjusted uh, from, from top to bottom. But that said, when they come along and they promise you the moon and they provide nothing concrete as to how you're going to get there, uh, don't fall for the banana in the tailpipe. And, and, and that seems to be exactly what the Medicare Act for all of 2019 is made up to be. It's just one big, potentially ugly, potentially lethal hoax. Our thanks to Dr. Marilyn Singleton, board-certified anesthesiologist, for uh, taking a couple of moments out of her busy schedule to give us some insights into this act. And uh, no doubt, doctor, as this continues to uh, be debated in Washington, D.C., we'll hopefully get an opportunity to speak with you again further. Dr. Marilyn Singleton. All right, 5.33, and we're going to move on next to get you an update on what's going on in the world of traffic, to which we turn to Mr. Michael Bennett with the latest. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, well, if you think a discussion with Dr. Singleton regarding Medicare for All is not a little bit uh, disturbing insofar as questions about who's going to pay for all of it. Oh, then just wait till you see the Green New Deal, or uh, as some put it, the, the Green Raw Deal, the green part being the color of your stomach when you hear the details. Uh, this is apples and oranges, nuts to soup, and everything in between. Promise, promises to be a panacea for all at every single level. And of course, uh, in all the things that it promises to do, the one thing it doesn't address is who's going to pay for it. It. Joining me is Ben Lieberman, Ben is senior fellow and expert in the arena of environmental policy at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. By the way, he's got some seven years experience as senior counsel for the U.S. House Committee on Energy and Commerce. And Ben, thank you so much for taking some time to uh, give us a look at just exactly how expensive this is going to be. So it's the Green New Deal or a Green Raw Deal? I think you're more accurate with the, with the second one there. It's yeah. hard to pinpoint an exact price on it because it's just so uh, ill-defined, but it's certainly going to be well into the trillions of dollars. 
and thousands of dollars per household. What what what, what strikes me about uh, Ocasio Cortez's proposal here is is it seems to be again once again, and I made reference to this in my opening remarks tonight. It, it, it seems to be sort of the old uh, Coolidge promise. I think it was either Coolidge or Hoover. You know, uh, there was going to be a, a car in every driveway and a chicken in every pot, but but this is on steroids. And while it's fun to talk about free things and goodies. Uh, at the end of the day, if you don't deal with the central question of who is it going to be paying for it, and while you're promoting all of this over to one side, what's the, the, the collateral damage going to be on the other side? And these are two fundamental questions that so far no one on Capitol Hill has taken the time to address. Am I right? Absolutely. Uh, the Green New Deal will really do a number on electric bills, on the price of gasoline, really on energy prices overall, given how important energy is uh, to the cost of living. This will really raise the cost of living. And one of the ironies is, of course, that the authors of the Green New Deal hold themselves out as the friends of the poor. But with friends like this, you don't need enemies. Well, I, I hasten to remind listeners um, at the time that um, then-presidential candidate, soon-to-be citizen Al Gore, was sort of gearing up to make the shift from being a public servant to a uh, private individual on the uh, speaking circuit um, and was beginning to promote all of the talk about uh, the climate change and so on and so forth and the need for all of us to, uh, you know, tighten our belts and begin to save energy, that while all of the lectures were taking place about how destructive greenhouse gases were, and I'm not disputing validity to some of that, but the same Al Gore lived in a beautiful multi-room mansion in the outskirts of Nashville, Tennessee, and his annual electric bill was $39,000, or on average, four grand a month. And nobody ever bothered to call him on that. So I suppose some degrees of the inconsistencies here um, in in uh, those making the proposals are not to be all that surprising. Now, the, the original New Deal... Uh, ben, for folks that, that weren't around or, or missed the uh, history class that day, was a proposal that was put out by then-candidate, later President Franklin Delano Roosevelt to address the economic meltdown that America was experiencing with the stock market, stock market crash of October of 1929. And by the time the president was elected and there was a change in leadership, America was in pretty bad shape. 25% unemployment and, you know, it, 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 the economy was on the rocks. The New Deal at the core was designed to stabilize the economy, provide jobs and economic relief. But as I'm reading through some notes on the Green New Deal, this wants to address energy, infrastructure, housing, transportation, manufacturing, agricultural, employment, health care, food, and more. So this is just going to be the one-size-fits-all for everything that ails us, I suppose. Yes, and even beyond the, uh, the, the, the uh, global warming-related provision, there's a whole host of things that have nothing to do with the environment. Universal health care and child care, living wages, promises of unionized jobs. I have no idea why it is that a unionized job is better for the environment than a non-unionized job, but apparently it, 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 it is. So this really is using environmental concerns as a pretext for rolling out the same old agenda that we've, 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 we've heard from these people for decades. 
Give us a little bit of deep analysis, since this is really your your field of expertise. I, I made mention of um, the expenditure that Al Gore was spending in um, his monthly uh, energy costs to heat and to uh, provide light and so forth to his home in Nashville. $39,000 a year is no number to be laughing at, unless, of course, you're making you know a million dollars a year, and then it becomes chump change. When we talk about some of the goals that are built into this proposal, including, for example, low-carbon electricity grid, uh, essentially uh, net-zero uh, emissions. Um, now, the last time I checked, they weren't building new rivers or streams, so hydroelectric power might be a little bit of a challenge. But when you, when you look at this, what kind of a hardcore cost are we really talking about in terms of what's going to happen to the average family's electric bill? Oh, well, I've heard estimates uh, well into the trillions of dollars, even the tens of trillions of dollars overall, and costs per household that could reach possibly thousands of dollars per year. Completely unrealistic. Again, coming from people who are just out of touch with uh, the reality of struggling to pay that electric bill, that gas bill, struggling to, 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 to fill the car up with, uh, with gas. So, it's, again, it's hard to come up with a hard number because... The, uh, the Green New Deal is still very amorphous, but the, the, the goals of it uh, would not be uh, achievable uh, at, at any reasonable, uh, acceptable price. And in fact, the goals may not be achievable at any price because it cuts out so many energy sources, coal, oil, natural gas. It even uh, cuts out uh, nuclear and hydroelectric, which you mentioned. We're left with this solar and wind, which we know are unreliable and can't give us electricity 24-7. So in terms of electricity, this, this, this wouldn't work even at, uh, at exorbitant prices. So there's a lot of problems here. I'd also add that we'll be doing this to ourselves while China and other industrial competitors will still have access to cheap uh, coal and natural gas-fired generations. We'll lose even more manufacturing jobs to these countries that will have this advantage of not doing anything as foolish on themselves as what we would be doing to ourselves. Now, now Ben, I, I've got to just uh, maybe take you to task on, on one thing you just said there, and that is that you, you pointed that they're going to look to reduce or eliminate many of the traditional current sources of electricity, whether it be nuclear power. I think we've got one or two plants left. That's about it. Um, so we're going to get rid of nat gas, and coal has pretty much disappeared as well. Um, and, and we know that um, it creates a grid solely dependent upon solar power can be a little bit problematic because how do you deliver all that power at night unless you've got awfully big batteries? But on the whole thing of wind power, I have to really disagree with you on that. I think if we set the windmills up in a circle around the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., and just let some of the people that are proposing the Green New Deal talk 24 hours a day, that ought to create more than enough hot air (laughs) that could power this country and maybe Canada. Canada to the north and Mexico as well. What do you think? Well, I've been in Washington long enough. I think you're on to something. <laughs> Uh, I want to come back after a quick timeout, Ben, because uh, all joking aside, there are some colossally serious shortcomings with this proposal. And, and one of them comes down to a fundamental question that I get asked with with great occurrence right here at the radio station. And I'll tell you what that is in a moment and how that fits in to this equation of the 
Green New Deal, or as some are calling it, the, uh, calling it the Green Raw Deal. Ben Lieberman is with us, senior fellow with the environmental, uh, or with an expertise in biomental policy at the Competitive Edge, do this in English, at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. All right. We'll take a time out while I get some polygrip. We'll be back with more coming up around the corner. And to help you get around that corner, Michael Bennett's got the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center at 546. Michael, bail me out here. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back to the conversation tonight. Ben Lieberman, environmental policy expert at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, is with us. We are talking about the Green New Deal, or as uh, it's being referred to in growing circles, the Green Raw Deal. And, you know, there's there's a fundamental thing about this that, that, that reminds me of a, a lesson that uh, – a lesson that I see with some frequency here at work, Ben, and that is that, you know, oftentimes from a promotion standpoint or a marketing standpoint, we'll come up with ideas, and it's not unusual for the promotions director or myself or some others on staff to go into the boss's office and say, we got a great idea, and to then articulate what that idea is and, and how it's going to bring in new listeners or do, you know, exciting whiz-bang things, and inevitably... At some point during that conversation, as the boss listens strokes his chin, takes some notes, he will set down his glasses and his pen and turn to the gathered group making this wonderful proposal and say, I have one question. Sure, boss, what is it? What's it going to cost me? That seems to be a question that... <laughs> Nobody here, maybe they all need to go to work for my boss. Nobody here, Ben, that's that's talking about selling all these wonderful widgets called the Green New Deal has paused for even a moment to take into consideration. How can you even float a proposal when we don't even know if there's any degree of fiscal uh, possibility behind this? Yeah, we don't know whether it does more harm than good. In fact, I'm almost certain that it would do a lot more and good. And in fact, uh, it went over so poorly that um, um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell did an interesting thing. He decided to actually bring it to a vote. And then many of the supporters of the Green New Deal cried foul. They, uh, <laughs> they, uh, they, they, they realized this wasn't ready for prime time, that this puts uh, um, some moderates in a, uh, in a tough spot. And, uh, and, and, and so you, 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 you have people who, they were fine with it just as, as this vague idea, but if it was something that, that, that legislators had to vote on and, 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 and had to be accountable to the, to, 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 to the to constituents, they changed their mind about it. So maybe there is a little bit of reality about the cost seeping into this, just a little bit. Is this singularly, from your understanding, Ben, um, designed to address the, the issue of global warming, greenhouse gases at all? And I ask that because um, in the proposal or in the announcement of this, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says that this resolution calls for, and I'm quoting here, new national, social, industrial, and economic mobilization on a scale not seen since World War II. 
Close quote. Now I'm I'm have to to wonder. I I try to you know stay on top of the news and I read the paper every day. I didn't realize that we were in another major war that that put all of uh, civilized. Uh, Western society at risk here that we needed to come together and engage in something of this gargantuan proportions. I mean, I don't think anybody said, hey, before President Roosevelt declares uh, war on Japan following the attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 41, well, wait, first let's let's talk about what it's going to cost. I mean, there are times when for a matter of, of survival, you have to dive in, dig in, and do your best. So where where is the major crisis here? Where is the war that this is supposedly designed to address? Well, uh, the fact that global warming isn't turning out to be anywhere near the crisis that some have made it to be, I think it's becoming more and more clear. But the Green New Deal isn't even a solution, even if you assume the very worst. Uh, usually we declare wars on other countries, not on our own people. The Green New Deal would only affect uh, the, the American citizens. But China already emits more greenhouse gases than the U.S., and their emissions are rising much faster than us. And if anything, the Green New Deal will increase emissions in China because it will chase away manufacturing jobs overseas to nations like China that will be able to use more uh, cost-effective uh, energy sources to run their, their factories. So uh, it's a war on the American people, the American con- economy, the American consumer. It's, it's not a real war on the, uh, the issue of global warming because it does nothing to address the rest of the world the nation. Yeah, and, and this is a curious point that you make, but a very valid one. You know, here we sit as a nation of approximately 350 million. Uh, yes, we've got some of the most modern freeways in the world, although if you've driven the 880 or the 101 lately, you would wonder. Uh, yes, on average, uh, you know, uh, probably 75% of adults between the ages of 18 and and uh, 70 own an automobile. Uh, we also have some of the tightest emission controls of any nation on the planet. Just ask any of us that every two years have to go and visit a smog check station here in California. And yet... A, a travel overseas to just two countries, China and India, the, the combined populations of which are easily six times that of the United States. There are well over two billion people between the two countries that have very scant emissions controls, and what controls they do have are not enforced. Um, you will go into cities like Beijing, and oftentimes the air in Beijing is is so choking that it's not unusual to see people walking up and down the streets with surgical masks on, just trying to do the best they can to protect their lungs from inhaling all of that um, carbon pollution and so forth. And uh, the same thing can be said of many major cities in India. And yet, as much as we focus on the issue of greenhouse gases and global warming, and, I, I, and I'm not saying let's you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater, but why is it that we seem to be the singular nation that's being called into account to deal with all of this, and yet the two biggest uncontrolled polluters on the planet get to, way, get a, get to get away scot-free? I don't understand that. Yeah, and China especially. China's been building a coal power plant, a new coal-fired power plant per week, 
on average for for nearly the past twenty years. The you know, average family. Let me going. let me interrupt, Ben. The average family in China, be it in in big cities or in rural areas, and particularly in rural areas, it is not unusual for the average family to use coal not only to heat their house but to cook their meals. Oh, that's absolutely true, and they have every right to develop. That's 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 that. And to try to lift their, their citizens out of poverty. That's not the point. The point is we should not be unilaterally doing things here in the U.S. that only cause economic harm, that don't do any uh, environmental good. No, and, and you know, if we want to recognize that there's the planet has an issue, then fine, let's all work together. Uh, you know, here's a big market. Let's be talking about what can be done to help uh, decrease coal use in some of these other countries. But you know, again, measures like this, proposals like this, offer scant solutions to to the real big problems out there, and and instead offer sort of this this feel good response that, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, touches so many arenas, energy, infrastructure, housing, transportation, food, health care, employment, agriculture, manufacturing, at all, that you, you almost have to wonder, was this just sort of created out of thin air, not really serious, but sounds good on paper and, and gets a little bit of attention by the press as we're giving it today, but in the end really isn't a serious proposal? Because if it is a serious proposal... Sans the ability to really analyze this and have people like Ben Lieberman really give it a good, you know, once over, so to speak, this could be disastrous. Uh, I mean, this could be ruinous to not only the health of the U.S. economy, but kind of ultimately shut the whole country down, couldn't it, if something like this, as it's proposed right now in sort of the raw form, ever passed into law? Oh, absolutely. And the real risk is that it's so bad that it makes something um, uh, on a somewhat smaller scale seem reasonable by comparison. Uh, and that may have been part of the, uh, the the goal of the Green New Deal, to just ask for everything so that uh, uh, a mere trillion-dollar program to, to, to address global warming sounds pretty, uh, pretty, pretty, pretty tame compared to what they were asking for initially. So we need to be concerned about that as well. It really is we, we really need to be particularly concerned about the fact that whatever the U.S. does with regard to global warming will not make that much of a difference given China's increasing emissions. We just can't ignore that fact. And the fact that it will uh, really destroy any sort of competitive edge that we have if we are to then saddle this country with all of the burden, all of the expenses, and, and try to move into other arenas. I'm not saying don't explore alternative energy. I'm just saying there's a practical side to all of this. And I'm an engineer by trade. So the electrical part I get. And if we somehow think that we're going to be able to put up enough solar panels to replace the entire grid and use lead-acid storage batteries to provide the electricity at night and do this for the entire country, i got to tell you, I don't know what you're smoking, but you're smoking something. Uh, Ben Lieberman, I appreciate your time on this topic today, Ben. And, uh, you know, if this gets passed, then I think the next proposal is free money for all. Right? We don't have to go to work anymore. Just get out of the bank and grab a fistful whenever you need it. Ben is, again, the environmental policy expert at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, served seven years as senior counsel on the U.S. House Committee on Energy and Commerce. More information available on the web at CEI, think Competitive Enterprise Institute, CEI.org. Easy. How much will the Green New Deal cost you or your family? 
more than you can count. Six o'clock from KFAX. We've got traffic headline news coming up. Right now, though, let's get a look at that traffic. Michael Bennett's got the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. Sir Michael? Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.